namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa puthang tamang sanghang namasami So we're continuing with this um, this uh, particular chapter on the nature of defilements. Uh, so we had just been going through the uh, the asava, the um, uh, four different kinds of uh, outflows, um, and uh, <coughs> so then he continues to the next part. At this point, let us look at another link that is difficult to understand, the link between craving and clinging, it's tanha and upadana, which is similarly a stage involving mental impurity. The three kinds of craving mentioned earlier are all expressions of a single form of basic craving, which all unawakened people possess. This craving is evident when one investigates the deeper workings of the mind, beginning with its lack of understanding of the interdependent relationship of things. This misunderstanding produces the distorted sense of self, quote-unquote, which in turn generates an underlying desire for existence, the desire for this illusory self to exist forever. So these um, uh, the different kinds of craving, karma-tanha, uh, <coughs> the craving for sense-pleasure, Bhavatana, the craving to be for existence, and Vibhavatana, the craving to not be for annihilation. The desire for existence is not abstract, but is connected to the desire for sense objects. A person desires existence in order to experience desirable objects and to gratify sense desire. People want to be because they want to get. The desire for sense objects amplifies the desire for existence. I would also say it's a bit, a uh, bit broader than that, or, uh, because it's, it's also I would say to do with a fear of non-being or fear of death, and that uh, a sense of not necessarily just to accumulate things or have pleasant experiences, but just a sense of oh, you know, uh, I don't want this to end. That so a fear of non-being, a fear of death, a fear of, of uh, I've got this life. I've got I, I am me. I don't want to lose this. This is precious. And that not not necessarily thought through in so many words, but just I would say that's um, a lot of the driving force for bhavatana is a sense of defined being, just being something, <laughs> you know, uh, and even even being a, a a painful thing or an incomplete thing or a, a broken thing is far more desirable than than undefined being. So I I, I would say it's a little bit broader. Um, than uh, just um, we want to be in order to to get it's uh, it's that sense of um, definition that has a deep and you know, very profound attachment to and as I was um, I think I was saying the other morning in the yesterday morning in the morning reflections um, we to the to the ego to the habits of self view uh, undefined being seems like death or loss but. Uh, to the the jitta, to the heart itself, it, uh, that quality of la- of undefined being uh, or undefined uh, knowing is uh, is uh, liberating, peaceful, delightful. So that there's this bittersweet mixture, a bittersweet quality um, to to dhamma practice. That it's uh, and that um, bhavatanha has a lot of that flavor of just the desire for defined being. When the desire for existence is strong, but a person does not acquire desirable sense objects, however, the reaction is a state of existence that is unsatisfactory, objectionable, and unendurable. The person then wants the state of existence to end. But as soon as there is a desire for extinction, the desire for acquisition resurfaces, since there is the fear that with extinction one may not experience desired pleasure. The desire for existence thus follows in its wake. 
So this is how he's, he's talking about vibhavatanha that uh, I don't want to, I, uh, I've given up on that 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 desire I don't really want that um and that there's a sort of switching off or a rejection a, a, a pushing away but then he says um his description of it is that that's immediately followed by wanting something else uh, and again I would say it's a little bit broader than that sometimes vibhavatanha is a more comprehensive sort of depression, aversion, just I don't want to feel, I don't want to be, I don't want anything, I just want to, to switch off, I want to be numb. Um, and that uh, that, um, you know, perhaps that, the feel of the, the prospect of numbness is attractive. <laughs> um, but uh, often it's not even, again, it's not thought through or spelled out in those kind of terms, but rather it's just a, I just want to Zone out. I want to switch off. I just. I, I don't. I'm. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> I want to. I don't want to feel this. I don't. Want to, I don't want to know this. And uh, <clears throat> so, not necessarily. I would say not always. Uh, followed by some kind of um, uh, sense desire or desire for um, for being that that follows it. The same process occurs when one acquires an object of desire, but not to a satisfactory degree. Or when one acquires an object, but one starts to desire something else. The most basic and all-encompassing desire is the desire for more. <clears throat> one finds that human beings are perpetually searching for a happiness that surpasses the happiness that they are currently experiencing. Unawakened beings constantly miss or forsake the present moment. People find the present moment hard to endure. They want to escape from it and seek a more gratifying state of existence. The desire to get, the desire to be, the desire to cease existing must continually spin around, spin around in a vortex within the lives of ordinary people. Uh, because this cycle is subtle and can occur in every moment, people are not aware that they are constantly struggling to escape from the previous moment and to seek gratification from each subsequent moment. So that uh, comment about um, the most sort of all-encompassing desire is the, the, the desire for more... Uh, I quoted uh, some time ago John D. Rockefeller when he was the richest man in the world. He was the, the Elon Musk of his era. He was the owner of Standard Oil. And um, when a, a, a newspaper reporter asked him, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, you're the, you're the richest man in the world. Uh, can you tell me exactly how much money is enough? And he paused for a moment and said, just a little bit more. I thought it was very insightful. <laughs> Didn't mean that it was he was beyond it, but uh, he, he um, uh, just that sense of yeah, more is the, the most sort of primordial uh, urge in terms of, of craving. Uh, and then Venerable Paiuto's comments about um, uh, craving and then the, uh, the present moment, I think, is also very uh, very pertinent, very uh, very accurate. Just like I was quoting uh, Blaise Pascal you know, the other day that. Most of the world's problems are derived from a man not being able to stay, stay uh, alone by himself in a room and be content. Um, getting away from the present moment, there's this way that that um, we are, we want to, to relive the past or, or, or lean in towards an imagined future because you know this present moment seems unsatisfying or incomplete or, or uh, un, ungratifying in some way, and so a huge amount of energy and effort and, uh, and and concern goes into getting away from the, the present reality, which of course we can't really do. Uh, and so that that, uh, uh, that is a, a sort of self-perpetuating process whereby trying to avoid the present just creates more uh, causes for agitation and, and dukkha and difficulty. Uh, and that the practice of Dhamma is, uh, you know, Dhamma is akaliko, it's timeless. You know, Sanditiko, apparent here and now, akaliko, timeless. So the the practice of Dhamma is is literally going in exactly the opposite direction: is to open the heart completely and fully to to the present. And then there's a mysterious chemistry that comes about through really uh, attuning, uh, opening the heart to the present, and letting go of of self view, self concern. Um, and then the the mind relates to the present in in a very very different way, rather than the present being a um, something unsatisfying or incomplete. Um, rather, there's a, a quality of, of fulfilment or contentment or or wholeness. It's one of those slightly cheesy New Age statements 
and uh, that you come across in motivational posters from, or pictures from time to time. Like, you know, uh, uh, each moment is a gift. That's why they call it the present. <laughs> Sorry, it, it is a bit cheesy, but uh, fortunately we haven't got any of those around. I'm I'd probably ask them to be taken down if they were. <laughs> but yeah, you know, sort of thing you do see around uh, from time to time. Craving stems from ignorance because people do not understand the interdependent nature of things. A fundamental error occurs. They see things either as substantial, as possessing a stable and permanent core or self, or see things as existing for a period of time in a stable, substantial way, and then dissolving. So either that um, things are here and they will be here forever in an eternalist view, or that things are only here for a little while and they're going to end and, and that'll be it forever. They're going to be cut off and, and lost, which is the Ucheda um, Ditti, the, the annihilationist view. All unawakened people hold these two views in subtle degrees, uh, the eternalist or the annihilationist, and hence are subject to the three kinds of craving. Because of the deluded and deep-seated view that things possess a permanent solid self, there arises the craving for existence. And because of ignorance and doubt, there arises the competing view that things possess a solid substance, but that substance or self perishes and disappears. Consequently, there arises the craving for extinction. So I thought, uh, we'll just read a few uh, other quotations that relate to this area. I've, uh, I've quoted these before, but they're, they're the kind of things that um, bear repeating because they're essential, essential teachings. So this first one is uh, the Buddha speaking to um, uh, Venerable Mahakachana. Uh, the Venerable Kachana Gota approached the Blessed One, paid respects to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? This world, Kachayana, for the most part, depends upon the dualism of notions of existence and non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with right understanding, there is no notion of non-existence with regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with right understanding, there is no notion of existence with regard to the world. This world, Kachayana, is for the most part shackled by bias, clinging and insistence. But one such as this, with right view, instead of becoming engaged, instead of clinging, instead of taking a stand about myself, through such a bias, clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, and underlying tendency, such a one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. In this, their knowledge is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachana, Kachayana, that there is right view. All exists, Kachayana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. And so on. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away, cessation and non-arising of ignorance, there comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, when there are no volitional formations, there is the cessation of consciousness. Consciousness does not come to be, etc. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And then another couple of uh, teachings on this. So this is from the uh, that was from uh, Sutta number fifteen in the um, section on causation from the co uh, connecting discourses, and this one is from the Itivuttaka. This was said by the Lord. Bhikkhus, held by two kinds of views, some devas and human beings hold back, and some overreach. Only those with vision see. And how bhikkhus do some hold back? 
Some devas and humans enjoy being, delight in being, are satisfied with being. When the Dhamma is taught to them for the cessation of being, their minds do not enter into it, or acquire confidence in it, or settle upon it, or become resolved upon it. Thus bhikkhus do some hold back. And how bhikkhus do some overreach? Now some are troubled, ashamed, and disgusted by this very same quality of being, and they rejoice in the idea of non-being, asserting, Good sirs, when the body perishes at death, this self is annihilated and destroyed and does not exist any more. This is true peace. This is excellent. This is reality. Thus bhikkhus do some overreach. How bhikkhus do those with vision see? Herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Having seen it thus, one practices the course for turning away, for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. Thus bhikkhus do those with vision see. And then the last couple of quotations come from the simile of the snake, Majjhima Nikaya Sutra number 22. Uh, here, Bhikkhu, someone has the view, this is self, this the universe. After death I shall be permanent, uh, uh, everlasting, eternal, not subject, not subject to change. I shall endure as long as eternity. They hear the Tathagata, or a disciple of the Tathagata, teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, biases, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for nirvana. They think thus, oh, so I shall be annihilated, so I shall perish, so I shall be no more. They then sorrow, grieve and lament, they weep, beating their breast and become distraught. Then later on in the same sutta he goes on to say, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely and wrongly misinterpreted by some summoners and brahmins thus. The summoner Gautama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, and I do not proclaim this, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely and wrongly misinterpreted because both formerly and now what I teach is dukkha and the ending of dukkha. Any questions, thoughts, reflections on any, any of that? Yes. Um, oh, well, it's not. <laughs> it's not quite specifically about that exactly, but it's um, just about kind of um, identity and attachment. How that comes about. Um, for example, I could say, well, I identify, identify with being a monk now. In the past, you know, as a lay person, I'm an adult now. I was young before. So we see that changes, you know, with uh, time and places, circumstances. But sometimes I reflect that with like the karma, it's like you know, kind of come into this life, and it's like you got like a little suitcase, and there's not much in the suitcase, and then you get older and older, gets bigger, and load or, gets heavier. Or not. And um, <laughs> it's like even in the monastic life, you know, you kind of. Developing the goodness, letting go of the impulse and the purifying mind. But um, sometimes it feels like, you know, you hear like the, the master, all the great masters will say, you know, you're not your body, you're not your feelings, not this, not that. And I kind of understand the theory, but then it seems like with the karma, you know, like the habits and tendencies, it really feels like, you know, that's the way I am. And, it kind of changes a bit, but it's like obviously I understand the theory of it saying that's not truly what I am. But then, you know, presumably we, you know, you take that with you, you die, and then you know that con continues. But no, or, or, or does it? <laughs> or not? <laughs> but what I mean is, it's like um, you know, obviously how to break that identification. That's the tricky one. Because that's I've tried to change your habits. Mm -hmm. You know, when they say, oh, you change your habits, do this different, da da da. But, you know, in one sense, that, that's true. But then in another sense, it feels like, you know, it's like banging your head on a brick wall because you can't just totally change your tendencies. Well, you can't change your personality. You can't suddenly make yourself a foot taller or change your shoe size. You know, there's. 
personality-wise, physically, you know, some of the things are, are fairly set patterns. But but those patterns are also not who and what you are. It's just that you know, the, because of because of birth and because of of uh, the the life process, then we get very identified with particular set of conditions, um, and we take this to be you know who who and what we are, and. Uh, and so there, there are you know, certain forms and patterns that, that continue. You know your nationality, your your, your name, your kind of family history, your gender, your kind of, um, the, you know, the language you speak, and so on and so forth. Those those are, are fairly sort of deeply rooted sets of conditioning. But then then they they can't be who and what we are in any absolute sense. But uh, w- uh, what you find though is that. Uh, with the the great enlightened beings of the world, that yeah, they still have personalities, but they they kind of function through that. It's like a, a you know a, a, the the robes they put on or, or a, a a costume that they that they wear. It's not it's not taken as anything um, absolutely solid or, or real. So you uh, yeah, it's there. You know, you still have your accent or your um, your your shoe size. <laughs> And uh, that, those kinds of conditioning, but, but so what? The mind doesn't have to make anything <coughs> out of those uh, those attributes. And it can be that you know you're. Uh, I'm a very chatty person. You know, I'm very verbal. Other people are extremely quiet. You know, but um, yeah, Ajahn. Uh, the the difference between Ajahn Man and Ajahn Sao was was also much remarked upon. That Ajahn Man was was a very uh, Gifted teacher and was uh, very um, you know, skilled in, in explaining and, and giving guidance. And Ajahn Sao was incredibly quiet. He, he was sort of famously taciturn. You know, that he could get up on the dhamma seat and, and uh, I was told one of his dhamma talks was he got up onto the dhamma seat and he said, you know, recited the Namotasa and he said, "It's good to be good." <laughs> A one. <laughs> no, that was the talk, you know. It's, it's good to be good. You know, five words, and that was it. Nothing else to say. A one got down from the got down from the dhamma seat. So um, that you know, you you function through the particular patterns of your personality, your conditioning, and uh, but you don't have to to carry it around as a something uh, as a permanent identity. It's just a Medium of expression. I guess the, the, one of the issues I have is like that, you know, we all do it, I guess, to an extent, and almost is that, you know, identifying with being good or bad or doing something good or bad. So we like, you know, masterful and do good and try and develop good qualities, but then, you know, it's all like that can't be the, the main factor because, you know, it's never ending. And, it's never, never good enough, is it? Well, it, it's like uh, in the in that very the, the same sutta that the, the simile of the snake. You have the parable of the raft. The the Buddha says describes the the dhamma uh, as a raft that you use to get from this you know, from the, the dangerous shore to the safe shore, and you don't carry the raft around. And he said, uh, he says, uh, one shouldn't attach to unskillful qualities, and uh, and uh, and uh, one shouldn't attach to skillful qualities either. So that you you're trying to do good, but letting go of letting go of doing good. You know, that you still do what is good, but don't carry it around. Don't don't make it like a raft that you're you're carting around. And because in in and of itself, it's not liberating. It's it's a means to liberation, like the raft. But it's not just a matter of accumulating sort of good things to be doing. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes. Um, I may quote you, hopefully not misquote. Uh huh. Please. Uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, people suffer because they look for happiness in things that cannot uh, give them happiness, which is kind of uh, what I think the, the reading uh, uh, today sort of uh, points us toward. 
I was thinking um, about something similar I had where they talk about a happiness trap where uh, people get caught in, the, in, in this trap where they are looking for happiness. So for example, someone who is unhappy and they start maybe taking illegal drugs or something mm -hmm. to, to get away from whatever feelings mm -hmm. they don't want to experience or then they get addicted and lose their home and so forth and so forth. So it, it seems like that's that's kind of what's at the at the heart of uh, the, the the teaching to say if if you look for happiness where it cannot be found, you know, so you are going to be suffering. That's that, yeah, absolutely correct. You quoted me perfectly. <laughs> So it, it it's also uh, part of that is that there are relative happinesses like uh, that that uh, series of qualities that the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. There is a gratification. Like if you're hungry, and then you come to the servery and there's all the fine food that everybody is making and offering. It's like there's a happy feeling when that you know you're, you're hungry and there's some some of the kind of food that uh, you like to eat and. That, that there is a gratification, there is a degree of, of happiness and comfort there. The mistake is where you think that you know the happiness is in the food, <laughs> rather than in the chemistry of you being hungry and then having some of that food that's arrived in, a, in an appropriate way, and that then therefore you know the, the happiness is in the food. Therefore, more of it will make me more happy, and then that disappoints. So it's there's a recognition that there are, there. Are, Events and things that we hear and see and smell and taste and touch and, and think that do bring the, that flush of yes, that kind of gratification, as the asada. The, the trick is then not uh, latching onto that and thinking that the happiness is in the object rather than the happiness is, is in your, is the mind. That's where the happiness is. It, it, it's in the mind, it's not in the object. And so that's the, the the big ironic mistake that uh, is so so regularly made is that the happiness is in the the object, the thing, rather than in the the state of mind. I often say, and, and not everybody likes likes to hear this, but when when people talk about beauty in the sensory world or, or, or delight or enjoyment, um, that uh, sometimes I'll say. You know, you, uh, when you you hear a piece of music that you 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 know you really like, and you say oh, that's my favorite music, or that's really that's divine music. I lo I love that. That's really that's really beautiful. Uh, I, w I will sometimes say you don't actually love the music. You love the place the music takes you to. You love what happens in your mind when you hear that. Um, so that and <laughs> yeah, I've said that a few times. That people kind of <laughs> you kind of scowl and say no, you, you know that. And, uh, that uh, Disagree? No, no, it is. It's, it's perfect music, or it's a beautiful relationship, or it's not. Um, uh, you know, it is that person, or it is that food, or it is that sound, or it is that shape, or it is, it is that that color, that place. But I, I uh, uh, on reflection, I, you know, it seems more and more clear. No, but we, it's not the, the the landscape, or the person, or the the food, or the sound. Because you can be quote unquote in the same place and have the same landscape, or be with the same, you know, supposedly the same person. You can be really annoyed by them, or you can have the same food in front of you, and and you've already you're already full, or, or that you're you're feeling unwell, and so every kind of food is off-putting. Um, so, uh, and I do feel it's a helpful reflection to to take to heart that we don't love the thing; we love what happens in our heart, in our mind, when that. Thing is experienced in the in a particular way. That's what we love. We love our own mind. <laughs> okay. So to continue. These two wrong views give the that's um, the eternalist view and the annihilationist view. Uh, give the opportunity for craving to arise. If a person understands the fluid, interdependent nature of things, there can be no permanent, solid self, nor can there be a real, objective self that dissolves and disappears. 
Neither craving for being nor craving for extinction has any foundation to stand on. Craving for sense pleasure also results from these two wrong views. Fearing that the self or the pleasure may disappear, people anxiously search for personal gratification. And because they see things as permanent and solid, they grab onto things in order to reinforce a sense of stability. On a coarse level, craving manifests as the search for sensual pleasure and situations providing such pleasure, or as boredom with pleasures already acquired. People who have no inner independence feel tedium and agitation when they are unable to experience gratifying sense objects. They constantly search around for new forms of pleasure to escape their disquiet and discomfort. When they do not get what they want, they feel disappointment, discouragement and self-loathing. Their happiness and unhappiness are entirely dependent on external conditions. Time without stimulation or activity then becomes a punishment or a misfortune. Boredom, depression, loneliness and discontentment increase both for the individual and in society. Even though there, there is an increase of stimulating objects and the search for stimulation becomes more crude and passionate. A deeper inspection reveals that problems like drug abuse and teenage delinquency stem from a lack of patience, boredom, and the wish to escape from the state of existence one is born into in that moment. Well, there's a very interesting um, relationship between boredom and the sense of self, uh, I would suggest, <laughs> and that the the quality of boredom and restlessness and, and in, uh, impatience it seems to be directly related to the the strength of the I me mine feeling, and the less that uh, there is a sense of self, then the more difficult it is to be bored, and the the more that the heart is completely at ease with the present, uh, exactly as it is, and uh, again that's a, an area of practice I would encourage people to to investigate. You know, if if you are not there, it's impossible to be bored. <laughs> if the, there's the mind is awake to the present, and, the, and there's the, it's not creating the I me mind qualities. Then the um, <laughs> the the present is uh, is quite uh, delightful, is spacious, uh, is easeful, is a quality of contentment and fullness. The more there's a sense of I and me and mine, the more that that feeds the quality of restlessness and uh, and boredom and you know, and insecurity. It might not be the same for everybody, but I would, I would suggest it's a, a useful, helpful area to investigate. And you know, particularly we've got uh, this period of uh, group practice and a lot of formal meditation uh, times during the, these these days to explore that. Uh, maybe you find yourself looking at your looking at your watch, waiting for the bell to ring, and that to and those moments of yeah, when's this going to be over? Oh my goodness, it's only ten past. We've only been here ten minutes. I can't, can't be right. My, my watch must have stopped. Yeah. Tick, tick, <laughs> tick. <laughs> but, uh, just when when there is that kind of a a aching boredom, um, then turn the <laughs> turn the camera around, turn turn the uh, the attention around, and just see how much there's a me here who's practicing or waiting or, or watching the clock and and to use that as an opportunity to investigate that feeling of, of, of self, the self-creating habit, the ahankara, mamankara, and when that's let go of, just to see how the mind relates to the, the present experience and see whether you know, that quality of boredom or restlessness or insecurity, insufficiency has, has faded. Any questions? Disagreements? <laughs> okay. So, uh, Venerable uh, Paiuta, he has the, he, he follows the, um, the standard preaching method of, he tells you what he's going to tell you, then he tells you it, and then he tells you that he's told it. <laughs> so that's a, is an ancient method of, of giving, giving teachings in, across religious <coughs> traditions. So you tell him what you're going to tell him, then you tell him it, and then you tell him what you told him. So duty yampi tati yampi guarantees that the hopefully guarantees that the message gets through. <laughs> so this is a, a, again a little repetitious from things that have been covered before, but let's carry on anyway.
The mental impurity resulting from craving is grasping, upadana, of which there are four kinds. Kamupadana, grasping onto sensuality. As a consequence of craving, the mind firmly attaches to desired objects. When one acquires a desired object, one attaches to it because one wishes for further gratification and because one fears separation. Attachment arises when a person experiences a moment of gratification and then wishes to repeat the experience, or else when desired objects do not provide gratification. Loss or disappointment may then lead to greater fixation and longing. Although objects of desire do not truly belong to people, they try to persuade themselves that in some way they do possess them. The minds of ordinary people are therefore constantly tangled up with desirable objects and it's difficult for them to reach objectivity, security and freedom. So that's kamupadana, the grasping at sense pleasure. Next one, dittupadana, grasping onto views. The desire for something to exist or to be eradicated produces biased views and beliefs which correspond to people's desires. The search for gratification leads people to grasp onto teachings, theories, philosophical doctrines, etc., that serve and minister to their desire. When people attach to a view, then they appropriate it and identify with it. Apart from thinking and acting in accord with such a view, they feel personally threatened whenever they encounter an opposing view. So when you've latched onto a particular opinion, or say, this is this is how it is, or this is the you know, Theravada is better than Mahayana, or Thai forest tradition is the best form of practice, and the you know, the other forms of uh, practice in different countries is you know, it's not quite so good. Then, as soon as someone says, "Well, actually, in Burma, there's some pretty impressive people," and uh, you know, I think it's, they've already got the edge on the Thai forest tradition. Really, what do you mean? So that uh, you feel threatened. So your sense of self can be tied up with that. Um, uh, having taken a, a view, grasped a, a position, uh, taken a, 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 um, a stance on that, when something comes along and, and criticizes that, then or, or goes against it, then you feel personally threatened. So you, you uh, defend yourself. They feel this opposing view may diminish, weaken, or destroy their self in some way, and they therefore feel the need to defend their cherished view in order to maintain dignity. This reaction produces conflict, narrow-mindedness, and obstructed wisdom. They're unable to truly benefit from new ideas and teachings, and they're unable to advance their knowledge in an optimal way. And it's interesting how you, know, def- you can find yourself defending positions or opinions when you don't even really care that much. <laughs> but someone is, uh, you just find yourself getting into an argument or a discussion, and you're you just take a position and, and go against someone else, and and part of your mind is, is going, I don't really care about this that much, and you know I don't really have such a strong feeling. But you're in the flow of the of the the debate or the discussion, so you find yourself uh, speaking up for something, and and uh, it's not really that big of a of a big uh, of an issue, big of an issue in your mind, but because of the dynamic of taking a view or taking a position and defending it, you find that you're really making a a um, a big deal about it. At least I found myself doing that in the past, and found others uh, doing that. It's also kind of interesting if you have a having a long discussion with someone, uh, and that you can uh, that if uh, if it's a sort of that kind of a of a dialogue of, of taking sort of taking positions and and um, arguing with each other or, or discussing things, you can find that. Uh, You've uh, a position that you were defending 45 minutes before. You're now opposing. <laughs> you're kind of a, but, uh, just just to make sure the other person's wrong and you're right. You, you, know, you can find that you things have slipped around. That you're you're um, think. Hang on a minute. 40, you know, three quarters of an hour ago, I was I was saying the opposite. Never mind. I'm still right. <laughs> just out of the need to be right and the other person to be to be wrong. So <clears throat> the dynamic of those kind of discussions. Um, can uh, can be more important than that as uh, sort of vying for for superiority or vying to to strengthen a sense of I more than the content of what you're actually talking about. Is that familiar at all? <laughs> okay, so to continue. So the third one, Silabat Upadana. Grasping onto moral precepts and religious practices. So also, um, as I've often mentioned before, then 
in uh, Ajahn Chah's talking about Silapata and Silapata Paramasa, then rather than just religious, religious practices and moral precepts, he would extend the Silapata to any kind of social conventions, you know, like the customs that we have with our, you know, our clothing or the way that we, we talk with each other, we greet each other, you know, who's, who's senior, who's junior, who sits where, all those kind of um, um, things that we invest with value or, or um, that we, we give importance to in society and the things that we can identify with in terms of like our status or um, you know, in terms of our qualifications or, or uh, how many meditation retreats we've done. Yeah, status doesn't just mean how much money you've got or how many degrees you've got. It can be like how long, can you, how long you can sit without moving or you know, how, many, uh, how many hours of uh, meditation retreat you've been on. So that the that all I would say comes in the silapata paramasa and silapata upadana clinging to conventions and forms that the mind gives this particular pattern of behavior these things value and invests them with with value and uh, and meaning but we and we forget that it's just a human agreement there's not anything solidly and absolutely there but uh, we uh, we buy into that and we we make it into a, a um, uh, a thing that is valuable and significant. The desire for acquisition and existence, the ungrounded fear of the dissolution of the self, and the attachment to views and doctrines all lead correspondingly, sorry, all lead to correspondingly superstitious behavior in the face of those things considered sacred and promising fulfillment. Even when people cannot rationally understand the link between these things and the desired results. Um, also things like publishing academic papers, you know, how many papers have you published, um, and, you know, what journals have you been published in, these kind of things. Uh, even though ordinary human beings can't understand what, the, you know, what, what your papers are saying, because it's all in kind of academic speak, <laughs> still it's like, well, I've been published in such and such a journal, and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's uh, so prestigious and important, and it's a sort of feather in your cap. Um, and there are there are people who are, who've sort of tested out that system and and published completely complete nonsense papers. I, I've I've heard that being done in, in sociology and also mathematics. There were these two brothers who produced these uh, completely bizarre mathematical papers that really had no meaning at all, but they were just so obscure and arcane that people who ran these these academic journals thought, "Well, this is amazing. This is incredible. I don't know what it's about, but you know." <laughs> Let's publish it because it's, it, it's, it seems really a significant result, I think. And they were just sort of doing it as a kind of joke, kind of a joke, or kind of testing the system. Okay, can we just write this nonsense and get it published and and see what <laughs> see what they do with it? And a friend of mine, when I was at university, a friend of mine was doing sociology degree because uh, uh, he, he was a bit irritated by the the kind of. Um, uh, terminology, the vernacular of, of sociology studies. So he would make up words. He would like make up some sort of compound words, just pop them into his essay and see whether the, the, his, the tutor would notice this is actually a nonsense word or this doesn't really exist or have any meaning. And he would, he'd sort of, in exactly the same way, let's just drop that in there and see if anyone notices. And as I remember it, they didn't usually. <laughs> they probably had to reach for their dictionary. Oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? So that uh, we we give a lot of value and meaning to a lot of social conventions um, without being aware of it. So it's all in the domain of silabhata upadana. The firm belief in a self manifests externally as an unyielding attachment to, to behavior, rules, practices, customs, traditions, religious ceremonies, and established institutions without an awareness of their meaning, objectives, and value. As a consequence, human beings create such rules, customs, etc., to limit and confine themselves. They end up becoming narrow-minded and obstinate, and they find it difficult to improve themselves and truly take advantage of what they experience. The following passage from the late Venerable Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu may clarify this attachment to rules and practices, and this comes from um, one of his books. He doesn't say exactly which book this is from. When a person up, this is Ajahn Buddhadasa speaking. When a person upholds a moral precept or follows a teaching without applying reasoned awareness, he simply assumes that this action possesses some kind of sacred power, which will naturally produce positive results. 
Such a person acts merely by following forms, customs, conventions and scriptures passed down by society without understanding their true meaning. Because he repeats these actions until they become a habit, attachment becomes more pronounced. This form of grasping varies from the second form, which is a grasping onto mistaken views and opinions. That's a, a ditty, a ditto banana. This third form is very hard to rectify. It is a grasping onto spiritual practices, and so on, and their external manifestations. And then the fourth one, Attavadu Padana, uh, clinging to um, ideas of self. Grasping onto the concept of self. The mistaken belief in a true substantial self is native to the unawakened mind. This belief is re reinforced by linguistic conventions, which lead people to see things as distinct solid entities, like I, me, you, we, she, he, they. You know, we use personal pronouns and talk about individual people and have names and and, uh, and sort of roles in society and so on. That's what he means by the linguistic conventions. This belief in self, however, becomes a form of grasping when craving acts as a condition. With a desire for, for acquisition, a person attaches to the idea of a self which will experience or own the desired object. With a desire for a state of existence, there's a, there is grasping onto a self that dwells in that state. With a desire for non-existence, there is a grasping onto a self that perishes, and a fear of extinction leads a person to struggle to consolidate the sense of self. Or, as I was saying before, that the desire for annihilation doesn't lead to a renewed desire for existence. It just wants, just leads to more wish to switch off and not feel and not be, and just to to uh, to forget. As they say, as one of the main reasons for consuming alcohol and, and drugs of various kinds is to to forget, to to switch off. To, um, if I remember my uh, my uh, misspent youth, the uh, the aim of going out on a Friday night was to get obliterated. It's a familiar term to get to get wasted, get obliterated. That was how we spoke to get obliterated, and it's like Vibhava <laughs> Tanha. Uh, sort of, uh, even though we didn't have the word for it in Pali at that point, it's just that's the to, to switch off to to forget my myself. These forms of desire are linked to the idea of possession or control. People believe that there is a self manipulating events in accord with desire, and because events occasionally do follow desire, they believe that they have mastery over things. But such control is limited and temporary. The various factors attached to as comprising the self are merely isolated conditions in a larger causal process. Indeed, there is no factor in this process that can truly or permanently be controlled. People, however, interpret even this experience of partial control as proof of a permanent self. When people grasp onto the idea of self, they are unable to deal with things in harmony with conditional factors. Instead, they are deluded into trying to make things comply with their desires. If people do not act in line with causality, and things do not proceed as wished, then they feel oppressed by inadequacy and loss. The grasping onto an idea of self is central and acts as a basis for all other forms of grasping. So again, going back to my, my university years, uh, in terms of uh, in psychology, the, the most... Um, effective kind of, of condition, conditioning is what they call partial reinforcement. So when a, a, a pigeon presses a lever in an in a operant conditioning experiment and, the, and the, the lever occasionally produces some food in a random way, that's the strongest kind of... The, the pigeon will keep pressing the lever or the rat will keep pressing the lever uh, longer than if it's, uh, uh, they're given food all the time. Or they give them food at a, 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 a predictable rhythm. If it's uh, if it's a partial reinforcement, it's a, ra a random reinforcement. They only get food once in a while, and it's, there's no specific pattern. They'll keep pressing the, the lever just in case something might be coming along. So partial reinforcement of the choices that we make, bringing, uh, fulfilling the desires that we have, it works occasionally. That makes a very strong and we keep. Doing the same things over and over again because occasionally we get a we get a a, a hit. 
you get the, the result that we're, we're longing for. Then he very helpfully puts all these four together, these four kinds of clinging, grasping, into a, a single paragraph. And I think he puts it together very neatly here, how all of these four types of, of uh, upadana, four types of grasping, um, uh, so relate with each other. These four forms of grasping are connected. An encounter with a pleasurable object gives rise to craving and covetousness. This is followed by grasping onto sensuality. People attached to the people attached to the desired object, thinking they must acquire, experience, or possess it. Grasping onto views then follows. They think this is good. This will provide happiness. So that's a ditty. That's a view. Life will be meaningful when I get this object. When I have this house, or I get on this retreat, or when I uh, get my uh, my academic paper published, or uh, move to this new town, or whatever it might be. Life will be meaningful when I get this object. Or any teaching that promotes the acquisition of this object must be correct. So that's the, um, gra- uh, the uh, grasping onto rules and practices. People consequently uphold rules, traditions, moral codes, etc. as a means to acquire the desired, o- desired object. If I get to work for this company, then that will lead to what I want. Or if I get to live in this monastery, it will lead to what I want. Or I get to be in this... You know, uh, this qualification of you know, working in this this place, or get to be um, a consultant, doctor, or something, uh, get to be a uh, get a position as a professor in this university. Then, then uh, buying into that value system of that particular group, that particular uh, human collective, then um, there's that it promises that gratification. So we uphold rules, traditions, moral codes, etc., as a means to acquire the desired object. Furthermore, there arises the grasping onto a self as that which experiences or controls the object. So all those four it sort of puts together in this, uh, in this fairly sort of neat package. Any questions, thoughts? Yes? Um, so just a reflection on um, the advice and rituals. Obviously in the monastery we have quite a lot of uh, rituals. Yes. And I was wondering whether it would be helpful to say ever a week, no bowing, or <laughs> a week, reverse seniority, or just, you know, just, to, so just to test how, how it's actually made. I don't know, well, somewhere as the, the abbot of the monastery for a while. <laughs> That's what we Go first in the food line. Um, interesting idea. Uh, I think that will probably, I mean, it, it, uh, it's, it's, it's not um, totally outrageous. But uh, it will probably be the time that the film crew shows up to make a documentary about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but um, yeah, the uh, but it's also the we have lots of, of rites and rituals. But it's not just the rites and rituals of uh, bowing and chanting and such like. I mean, with the lockdown, we had a lot of no chanting, <laughs> a lot of no, no uh, nothing together. So. Uh, that, in a way, was a really good uh, opportunity to, okay, what is monastery life without coming together to meditate, without chanting, without bowing, without you know, meeting inside buildings? What is, you know, what is it? What, 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 are we, what are we doing here? How do we do it? So that in itself was a, a good opportunity to, to test that. Um, but there, there are also other uh, social conventions that we have that, um, that aren't not related to... to, to Theravada um, uh, tradition and so uh, and so on and so forth. Just we have a lot of of ways that we do things and the, the way we talk to each other, you know, the way that we arrange things that are are very much according to social conventions. Why are you not sitting on a chair at the back of the hall? Or is that in the, in the, you're sitting there because it's part of the convention. Yeah. So we have. Um, uh, I think it's uh, a skillful way of looking at it or working with it is to is to, to notice how many of those sort of standard forms of things that we do and to say, oh look at that, this this is called the right way to do it. I'm sitting in the right place. Uh, and that, well, what make, what makes this right? Uh, what will make something else wrong? And that, uh, so that you're dropping that the absoluteness that's given to it and recognizing well this is just the convention if it was a you know we, um, when we were, we were in the middle of the lockdown 
you'd be, you wouldn't be sitting in the right place. You're, you're less than two meters from these other people. You're in the wrong place. You know, we should all be two meters apart from each other. You know, that's right. But I, so to, to notice those things, okay, what makes things right, what makes things wrong, and how those conventions shift and change. So, so you don't have to, to, um, in a sense, physically stop the convention in order to get a perspective on it. They do have, in, uh, in certain societies, um, they would, uh, uh, they have, uh, their, um, I think in Roman times they had the, uh, because the, the solar year doesn't match the, 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 the lunar year, um, they would have these, they would have, um, it was the, each of the months was, was exactly 30 days long. And then they had to make five days up at the end of the year. So there was that, and those five days, all, all rules were off. It was like the, the uh, and in many cultures, they would have these periods where like you know, rules don't apply. They have the, the Lord of Misrule and someone who's like the, the, the kind of the poorest person in the village would be appointed the, the, the Lord of the Manor or be carried around in a, in a chair or be made the, 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 the king or the queen for a, for a week. And, uh, the Lord of Misrule. And then, uh, you know, all rules are off and, uh, and then uh, people can do whatever they like. And then after four or five days have gone by, then you'll, Back into the, <laughs> back in, back to the dung, dung shoveling, yeah. Yes. It's a lot of sort of unwritten social views in the world. In the Bihar, there's some, in, in the like regular paper world, there's others, right? Just like rules of, and it seems like that for a lot of people, it's like a miracle. Like, like the amount of time you spend having eye contact, or just like really subtle things. Mm -hmm. Just saying good morning. Yeah. <laughs> I've been told off to say how are you, come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just, it just rolls off the tongue, these conventions that people follow. And is it clinging, or is it just you're doing it, you know? It depends on the, the attitude in that moment. If, if, uh, uh, when when people ask me, which they frequently do, you know, how are you? I know that what they're meaning is they're just they're just saying hello. Yeah. But I usually uh, say I'm exactly like this mm -hmm. because they've asked, how are you? Like, <laughs> they don't want a medical report. <laughs> so uh, you know, I usually just uh, well, to flag. You know, you just ask how I am. You know, I, you don't really care. Just saying hello. It's just a way of greeting each other. And that um, it's just a, a a way of noticing the attitude that one has, so how you how you meet each other, how you, how you greet. So it's it can be clinging, but it it uh, it can also just be the skillful and appropriate use of a form just to get by with each other and to function in the world. It depends. It's it depends on the individual and on the attitude in each moment. I think rubbing along with the world is a nice thing to do. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we use lots and lots of conventions, and that uh, you know the way Ajahn Chah would talk about it is you you uh, to use the conventions of uh, of society and of the monastery and such like to use it that you, you hold but you don't cling you you use them but you don't attach to them or identify with them. And I was mentioning the other day how he was. He was quite fascinated coming to the West for the first time. Um, and that uh, you know, there are such a lot of different conventions. He'd never seen people shaking hands before. I mean, I think maybe in, in, in films, in the village, he'd seen when he was alive, but uh, actually seeing people shaking hands to say hello was, was, you know, it was a, just a strange thing for, for him. And that, uh, so he was, uh, he was fascinated by that, you know, the, the variety of different ways we you know, we can uh, arrange our lives, and that uh, and how when uh, going back to Thailand, he could see that uh, so many of the things that you do it this way, you don't do it that way. And if you're relating to a monastic or to a lay person, that you should be like this, or this is a senior person, this is a junior person, you should do this, and and so you you still uh, go through the processes of. Of um, making the appropriate gestures or, or 
patterns of relationship, but you're recognizing, well, this isn't this is an agreed form. This is what we choose to do here. This is this is how it's it's done, um, and that if it, if conventions are used without attachment, with just a, a um, with holding without clinging, then they're very useful. They, can, you know, they have a they have a purpose in the world. They're not just random. They they can be valuable and helpful. If you try, if you think all conventions are sort of bad and wrong, and you try to live without conventions, it gets very difficult, very very quickly. <laughs> so seven o'clock has come around already. So um, I'll leave it there for today. Yeah. Sadhu, 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 Sadhu.